If you happen to notice uh, the PowerPoint projector going out sometime during the service, we're just going to leave it off and preach the old-fashioned way, okay? Fortunately, God's Word is not dependent upon technology and can't be stopped when projectors go out, but it is a nice segue into me giving an update on the projects. (laughs) I did not plan that either. Eventually, we will have to replace that projector, but... Um, In the meantime, you see some construction taking place up here on the platform. We've done some repair work in getting ready for uh, the new carpet that will be coming in, uh, potentially in the middle of August, and we'll be recovering the pews also. Um, A really high priority to us is that um, we are putting in an elevator on the west end of the building, and those projects combined uh, total up to a lot of money. We're about $15,000 short still. So as you do your giving, and if you want to check the building fund on the bottom of that envelope, that building fund represents building projects in the way of updates. Not that we're building a new building someplace, but rather improvements to the facility. Ultimately, we hope to be able to also carpet downstairs in the fellowship hall. But for now, we just want to make this carpet in here match the carpet that's out there in the atrium, which you might remember we did uh, last last year. And then in the future, uh, we also need to grab all the parking lot out there um, where people are parking. If you might remember, if you were here last fall, it was kind of muddy walking into the building after rainstorms, so we want to fix that too. So keep in mind as you pray, those of you who are prayer warriors especially, that God would provide that extra fifteen dollars to $20,000 that we need to pull off the rest of these projects. Thank you for the giving that you've been doing, though. We've made a lot of progress. Well, we're going to take a look again this week at uh, Genesis and continue on in the series Foundations. Um, you might remember last week that we had um, ended the week at, at the point in which God was calling us to not shrink back from Hebrews chapter 10. I want to take you to a passage this week before we jump into Genesis 22, in which Jesus was talking to his followers just after he had healed Lazarus, after he had resurrected Lazarus and brought him back. People were still in shock about what had happened. And they're following Jesus closely. Now, if you remember the story at all, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of Israel, were out to kill Jesus because of what he had done with Lazarus. As a matter of fact, Lazarus was also on their most wanted list as a result of this. Now, in the midst of this, when Mary and Martha are running back to the undertaker trying to get a refund on the cemetery plot, Jesus is talking to his followers and saying, I want you to know what's really on my heart because this is just days before he's crucified. This is what he says. Do we have it? No, we don't have a screen, so let me read it to you. Oh, excellent. All right, John 12, follow along on the screen. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In the midst of this passage, 
Jesus is personally demonstrating what it means to surrender all, to surrender everything, his own will. Remember the prayer in the garden, not my will, Father, nevertheless, your will, let it be done. I have on my computer a picture that I keep that comes up before me every day to remind me of what does total obedience look like. This is what it looks like. That's a landing craft at Omaha Beach. D-Day. Omaha Beach, Deliverance Day, World War II. Those guys are smiling. This is a half hour before they landed at Omaha Beach. I keep that on my computer, on my screensaver, so that it comes up to remind me what does total sacrifice look like? These guys are a half hour before they paid the ultimate price. Jesus steps it up a notch when he says, this is what obedience really looks like. When he says this in Matthew 10.37 on the screen, you'll see it. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It's a new definition of surrendering all that separates you from God. That little part that you hold back. This kind of obedience takes you to a whole new level in what we talked about last week, the crisis of belief. You might remember that phrase that I said from Henry Blackaby's study, Experiencing God. If you haven't gone through it before, you might want to. Henry defines a crisis of belief when you get to a moment in such a point where God asks something of you that is incomprehensible. God, I cannot believe you're asking this of me. Now, we see that as we've studied Abraham, that he came to that about four times in his life. First crisis, God called him from the Ur of Chaldees. Leave everything you know and come to this new land that I'm going to give to you. Second crisis of belief, separating from his nephew Lot. Letting Lot go down into Sodom and experiencing a whole new life, a whole new crisis for Abraham. Third crisis you learned about last week. Sending his 17-year-old son, Ishmael, away from the family enterprise, away from life with dad and mom as he knew it. Fourth crisis, fourth crisis, biggest crisis of his life. You're going to learn about today. The crisis of belief when it comes to Isaac. I've found in my walk with Christ that God's testings of us are tailor-made to each of us. What you experience isn't what necessarily I will experience. What Moses was asked to go through was not what Elijah went through. What Elijah went through was not what Abraham went through. Oh, in one sense, it's a compliment when God sends a test your way because it, it shows, it demonstrates that he believes you can handle it. How you respond to it is up to you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Here's a paraphrase of that. I don't know who wrote this. I'd love to give him credit for it. But read this on the screen with me. Our faith is not real until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable, and expect what seems impossible. Take that in. Just digest that. When the situation is too big for you to deal with, do you really come to the point where you say, like back in Genesis 18, when God said of himself, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for God? That's what he asks us in the midst of the crisis of belief. Nothing is too hard for me. Do you comprehend that? 20 years have passed from Genesis 21 to Genesis 22. What you learned last week to the point where it takes place this week, what we're looking at. 20 years of time, and for a long time now, Isaac has lived in the household of his parents. And indeed, he's probably brought laughter to their life, just like his name promised. He brought joy. And in the midst of this laughter and joy, like a thunderbolt right out of heaven, God wakes Abraham up in the middle of the night and sends a shockwave through his life. Look with me at Genesis 22, verse 1. By the way, if you're first time here at the church, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you if you didn't bring a Bible with you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those with you today when you leave. Genesis 22 and verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Mount Moriah is the very place where Solomon built the temple. So we're told by archaeologists today, many theologians believe that Solomon's temple was built on Mount Moriah over the rock that Abraham offered Isaac upon. We don't know that for sure, but that's what's been handed down through the ages. Today, there's a building that sits on top of that rock. You might be familiar with it. It's called the Dome of the Rock. Don't have it. That's fine. You may have seen that on the internet or on the news before, a golden domed building that sits over the top of the rock. It's called the Dome of the Rock because it is a mosque that belongs to Islam. Whole other story we're not going to get into today about how God is going to remove that in order to build the third temple. But this Dome of the Rock represents the area that most believe that Abraham physically, historically, really laid his son down in order to offer him up to God, to surrender him. After magnificent prosperity, you've learned in the last few weeks the incredible wealth that God bestowed upon Abraham. All that he took into his household, just when things were going really silky smooth, he'd negotiated a contract with the king, he had prosperous wells, his herds were reproducing, lots of crops growing, and now God, of all things, brings a threat to his peaceful world. And here's the thing that's most troubling about it for those of us 
who believed the word of God, this threat came from God. The promised child and God places a command upon him that is unbelievable. God, you're asking me to give up my one and only? We don't know that Abraham asked that. All we see is that he responds in obedience. Specifically, if your scripture, if your text says that God tempted him, that's an inaccurate interpretation. It should say God tested him. The word is nakah, and it means to put someone to the test in this way. In a modern analogy, you can think of it like this. If you know what a ropes course is, the designer and the builder of the ropes course that put that rope up there at 30 feet above ground for you to walk across it and to challenge yourself didn't build it for his benefit. It was for the benefit of the person going across the ropes course. That's what nikah means. God nikah Abraham. He tested him so that Abraham could prove to himself, to all those around him, generations to come, and to God, he evidenced to God that he really feared God, that he really would obey God. God's allowing Abraham the opportunity that many of us get, an opportunity to demonstrate our faith. And that's what we see playing out here. Your son, your only son, whom you love. In the Hebrew, it's very emphatic. Your only son, your son, whom you love. Fourth one, Isaac. So there's no mistake. This is the one I want you to bring. Abraham heard and immediately he obeyed. Immediately. He knew that God's will never contradicts God's promises. I woke up one morning back in the early 1990s with a conviction on my heart that God had placed for about nine months that I was supposed to resign a position of a ministry that I was working in. I was so convicted that after getting up from prayer, I said to my wife, this is the day I'm supposed to resign today. God made it very evident to me. So indeed, I went into the office of my coworker and said, I have to be done here. And it's because God's calling me on to a new thing. I felt at the end of the day the warmth of God on me because I responded in immediate obedience. You have to get to the point where you cannot trust your human emotions and your own feelings in the midst of a time like that. When you believe God's calling you to do something, to something new, and you allow your human emotions to override it, it'll shut you down every time and keep you from advancing in your walk with God. God's saying, don't trust your human emotions. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't incredible pain with what Abraham was feeling. Can you imagine what went through his mind as he's processing this? He had already experienced the resurrection power of God in his life. A hundred-year-old man giving birth to a child, his wife 90, that's resurrection power of God. He's already experienced that. But you can imagine the questions that race through his mind as he's trying to process this. What about the promises, God? What about all that you said you would do? What about all that I'm going to lose? But he didn't verbalize it as far as we know. But he's human, 
So certainly these questions raced through his mind. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Where he's living is Beersheba, where Mount Moriah is at, about 42 miles away. If you're walking at a normal human pace, 18 to 20 miles maybe. So he's got two full days in the wilderness, possibly part of a third, to get to the point where he's walking and processing, did I really hear God? Did God really say that to me? I can't believe I'm about to do this. Now we don't have a record of any of that. But I know what I'd be asking, and I've walked with God for a long time. God, was this really you? Abram had all this time to reconsider what he was about to do. You notice in the text it says he split wood. Imagine he's hitting that wood pretty hard. (laughs) I can't believe this. Splitting the wood. That's a detail there that we get, an insight into Abraham. He's personally willing to prepare the wood for this sacrifice. What a sleepless, tortured night. You think you've had sleepless nights before? Can you imagine this? Is this not a picture of the exact same struggle that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane? Up all night, rustling. God, if this is your will, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will. God, did I really hear you? Even Jesus in the garden wrestled with those emotions. You can imagine Abraham. God's requiring something of him beyond human understanding. If you've walked with God very long, you've had that same empty stare come across your face. A stare of disbelief. I cannot believe this is happening to me. God, is this really your will? Are you in this? It's so difficult when something happens to us in which we fail to see any logic. Everything seems to be against it. When I resigned my position at that ministry, I was not financially in a position to go out and stake my claim in the next business world. But I was doing what God called me to do. Abraham could not logically reason this. I am so impressed with his obedience to God. It's why he's called the great man of faith. His heart is ripped, and yet he's obeying God. Verse 4, On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from the distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. If you're in a habit of circling in your Bible, or you don't mind underlining, you might want to go back to that text and underline, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham had no intention of bringing a corpse back to those guys. He knew beforehand, before he went to the mountain, that God was going to do something so magnificent 
in the life of Isaac and Abraham that they had never experienced before. He was very deliberate. I'm going to explain to you how. Now think of this. Abraham gathered the wood when he lived all the way back in Beersheba and carried it with him 42 miles. He's at the foot of the mountain, and he puts the wood on the back of his son. He wasn't going to get up to the top of the mountain and say, Oh, there's no wood up here. Yes, we'll have to come back another day. Can't obey God today. Darn, forgot the matches. No, he deliberately carried fire with him, and he carried wood with him, so that he could not disobey God when he got to the point where he had to obey God without any excuses whatsoever. There's no turning back at this point. He's doing everything he could to obey God. But he said, we will come back, we will worship, and then we will come back. Interesting that he knew that God was going to do something to deliver this situation. Scripture shows us that he believed that God was going to resurrect Isaac from the dead. We'll look at that in just a minute. But I want to introduce a thought to you that perhaps you haven't considered before or ever heard. The concept of the third day is really, really huge with the Jewish people. Resurrection on the third day is a big deal in their theology. As a matter of fact, let me read to you from Hosea 6.2. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Now go all the way back in time in your mind to the time when Jesus resurrected Lazarus. How many days did Jesus wait for Lazarus to be in the grave? Three days. On the fourth day, he came to do the resurrection. That's why Mary and Martha argued with him and said, He's been in the grave three days, Lord. He stinks by now. Because by the fourth day, they believed that resurrection was impossible. These are not people who didn't believe in resurrection. They just believe it had to happen on the third day. So when Jesus was resurrected on the third day, all the alarms and the bells on their dashboard should have been going off. Third day resurrection? Whoa. This is a big deal to them. So when Scripture says in verse 4, on the third day Abraham raised his eyes, you want to pay special attention to that because God does something significant. This story is a type of Christ. That's what we call it. It's a reflection of what's coming in the New Testament. Think of Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain. Think of Jesus carrying the cross. Think of Isaac willingly laying down his life. Think of Jesus willingly laying down his life. You get an Old Testament picture of the sacrifice of Christ and Abraham's being very, very deliberate in it. Now remember, Abraham had no record of a resurrection of a dead body. Hadn't happened up to this point. There's no writing. We've got it today. He had no record of this. But yet, listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was, to, it was he to whom it was said... In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Listen closely. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham already understood 
that resurrection was within the power of God. And perhaps this is what he was going to do in the life of Isaac. Where in the world, though, did this father get the strength to carry through, to step out and take this action and to say to his servants, we're coming back. You guys wait here. We're going to go up there to worship. We're coming back. Where did he get that resolve? Somewhere, I believe this in the heart of my soul, somewhere in the awful, awful night that took place before, when that wrestling took place, that heart struggle, there also was the reminder of the God whom he had walked with, the God who only wants the best for you, the God who never breaks his promises, and the God who visibly said right to Abraham, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? So he walked into this fully believing that God was going to do something magnificent. Now, it's very clear that Isaac didn't know what was about to happen. He didn't understand what God's plans were for Abraham because he wouldn't have asked this question in verse 7. Verse 7, it says, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Clue phones ringing. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. The record of Scripture is completely silent when it comes to the emotional reaction of Abraham. But can you imagine the trembling that took place inside when his son said, Dad, where's the lamb? I can feel, I can feel the shake inside. My God will provide the lamb, my son. And the two of them walked on together. If you understand that by this command that God said to offer your son, what he was saying was not perhaps if you've grown up in church and you've seen the picture of Abraham standing on the mountain with his son with a sword like this. No. This was a real offering. You're talking about slicing the throat of the sacrificed animal talking about filleting the animal, talking about sprinkling the blood on the altar, talking about taking all the parts that he's laid on the altar in pieces and then lighting a match to it. That's what God called him to do. This is way beyond the simplistic picture that's portrayed in Sunday school papers. God's asking the unbelievable of his faithful follower. Do you see how critically important it is to believe God's promises that what God says he wants for you is only the best for you? That's the only way you can step ahead into unknown territory, not knowing what the outcome is going to be. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Something you might want to keep in mind, Isaac's probably about 25 to 27 years old at this point. Do you think he could have taken a 125-year-old Abraham 
Dad, I know you're in great shape, but come on, I'm 25, you know. Think about what this meant in the life of Isaac. We think about what this meant in the life of Abraham. Think about Isaac. Think about going home at the end of the day. Mom, you won't believe what Dad and I did today. But also think of the times when Isaac could tell his children and his grandchildren and their children about the provision of God, about the willingness of laying his life down and God providing a substitute. Did he have a story to tell or what? All things are ready. The altar's built. Fire's crackling over there. And Abraham stretches out his hand, and I've got to believe it's trembling. Everything's ready. God's ways are so hard to comprehend. But a professor of mine in Bible college said this, our disappointments are God's appointments. Our disappointments look like nothing good can come of this. And God says, this is an opportunity for me to step in and show you how great I am. Verse, 13, verse 11, By, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. If you've been here in the last few weeks, you've heard me use this word related to the word fear of God. Yalre. You say that with me? Yalre. Again, Yalre. That word is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean the fear that you're thinking of. It doesn't mean the fear of the boogeyman at night, the one who's going to jump out from behind the corner and surprise you. It means what? The awesome honor, the awesome understanding that I walk in Yahweh of him. And God said this to him, Abraham, you Yahweh me. And because of that, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to bless you magnificently. This is a Yahweh that comes from the, the center of your being, from the inside of who you are. It's, a, it's an understanding that God's rule in our life has absolutely no effect into willing to yield to him those things that we hold most precious. I stand here today believing that every one of us in this room have something that we're holding back from God. Some relationship, some complication with a job, something to do with our finances, something keeping us from a fullness of relationship with God, something that we have not totally surrendered. Let Jesus' words echo in your ears for a moment. He who loves father or mother or brother or sister more than me is not worthy of me. There aren't many things you hold more valuable than father, mother, brother, sister. 
a spouse, of course. But Jesus said, if you keep that between you and me, you're not worthy of me. This is what you see being played out in the life of Abraham. Verse 13, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Abraham discovered here a brand new name for God. First time it's ever used in Scripture, Jehovah Jireh. If you're in a situation where you're waiting for God to come through, you're waiting for Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says that when he offered up this burnt offering, he would have gone about the traditional method of offering a burnt sacrifice in which each time when he performed an act, whether it was the sacrificing of the ram in the first place, he would have stopped and said, Master of the universe, receive this as a representation in place of my son. Flaying the animal, Master of the universe, receive this as though I had been doing this to my son. The sprinkling of the blood, the same act. Imagine the tears that are streaming down Abraham's face at this point. God, you're the God who provides. You're Jehovah Jireh. Where does the Lord provide in the time of our need? There's a lesson you can pull right out of this. It's in the place of assignment. It wasn't back in Beersheba that God showed Abraham, oh, you guys are starting out and you're carrying the wood? Oh, by the way, there's a ram. Go ahead and take him. It wasn't at the foot of the mountain. There's a ram. Go ahead and take it up the mountain with you. It was when Abraham went to the place that God called him to go to, that was when he provided. Not a moment before, not a moment too late. When God said, do this, he did this and obeyed. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Greater regard to the purposes of God than the love for his own son. How much devotion is this? How much devotion and love is this that one would not hold back his only son from the purposes of God? For God so loved the world that he gave one of his many sons. For God so loved the world that he gave an ox. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son. How much devotion and love does God have towards you that he would offer up his one and only son? In Isaac's case, a substitute died for him. In Jesus' case, there's no substitute that can measure up to the Son of God, to the King of Kings. He alone could be the sacrificial lamb. He alone could be the one that could step in. When Isaac said, where's the lamb for the offering? John answered it 2,000 years later. Behold, the Lamb of God. God spared not his own son, but offered him up willingly for us, Romans 8.32. There's one thing for you who are mature in the faith that I want you to take away with you today. Those of you who are walking with Christ, that you might miss as you read this passage. It says, your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. Now, historically, that did work out in the time of Solomon and in the time of King David. They did possess the gates of their enemies. But how much more, 2,000 years forward in time, did Jesus possess the gates of our enemies when he conquered the gates of hell? Prophetically speaking, looking all the way forward, Jesus is the seed of Abraham, and he possessed the gates of the enemies. It doesn't just mean that he conquered. It means dominion, rule. For we are more than what? What? Conquerors. We're not just ones who take down the gate because of what our King Jesus did. We are conquerors who subdue. And we miss that because we fail to walk in obedience before God. Those who walk in faith and in total obedience, surrendering all, are those who can be more than conquerors. But you have to be in the place where you have surrendered everything. You're not holding anything back. Listen to these words. You heard it at the very beginning of the message. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. God, bail me out of this situation. Or God, be glorified in this situation. How you respond is up to you. How about if you pray with me? Father, we said at the beginning of this that just saying the words, I surrender all, means nothing if we don't really follow through with it. For those who are very far from you and not walking closely with you, God, I pray that you would teach them what it means to just take that first step to surrender everything that they know currently at this moment and say simply, God, I really do want to follow you. Show me the way. But Father, I think there's a whole lot more of us in this room who are years into the faith, who are still trying to figure out 
what it means to surrender to you. Father, for my brothers and sisters, the children in this room who've been walking with you for years and are still struggling with that, myself included, God, show us those things that we're keeping separate from you, things that we're not willing to yield so that you can be totally glorified. Father, our desire is to expand the kingdom, and we want to do that, but we can't do it unless we're surrendered to you. So I ask that you would look upon this group this morning. In the midst of this room in Hazlitt, Michigan, God, at this moment in time, convict us of the things that we have not surrendered to you. Do your work, Father, and let your Son be glorified in the midst of it. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Have an excellent, excellent week.